Welcome, listeners, to an Earl Grey Enforcer special. I am very, very lucky to have brilliant listeners step in and support the show. And Lee Bauer is one such listener who became an enforcer to keep the blood pumping and the lights glowing at SFGT headquarters. And as it is a custom for all my Earl Grey Enforcers, I asked them what they would like for their own dedicated episode. Lee responded with creepy stories that make me keep the light on at night. And hopefully, one of the many stories in today's episode will do just that. Or at the least, will get under your skin. I tried hard to make it happen. Before I jump into a proper thank you, Lee is dedicating this entire episode to his brilliant brother, Matthew J. Bauer, a white tea warlord of this podcast. Talk about awesome running in the family, right? Thank you, Lee. And I just know that Matto is gonna love the sentiment. Lastly, please, listeners, raise your Earl Grey or any hot drink you have, and cheers to Lee Bauer for your awesome support. Before we begin today's episode, there are adult themes, concepts like suicide, descriptors of gore, child death, and abuse covered in today's stories. So please, this is not for little ears, not even remotely. A big note to the suicide trigger, if the thought of suicide affects you in any way, or the topic in any way impacts you, please skip this one and wait for the Friday episode. Thank you. Now turn the lights off, the sound up, and are those yellow eyes staring back at me? From the darkness? Oh god. A Beast In the darkness there dwells a beast. Not just any beast, but one that can consume one's life and soul with such ease that the idea of challenge is merely a philosophy and not a fact for this creature. We cannot trust this beast as it is quick to cough us up or pretend it is not there, following you behind your back and mimicking your every move. The beast often will make you laugh. It will make you cry with tears of joy. It will make you scream with anger and frustration. These are the nuances of this beast. Some view the beast as a taunter or a demon. Others view it as a blessing or an angel. The beast does not comply with whomever it selects. It makes up its mind and takes action quickly, without informing anyone before doing so. One dark night, the beast was following another one of its victims, very closely, through a suburb when it was briefly distracted by a fluttering in its ear. The beast quickly turned to its left to see what made the fluttering sensation, and was thrown back with awe at the most beautiful human it had ever seen. She was sitting on her front porch, reading a magazine underneath the dim light. But, 
The beast was still stalking its previous victim, and it had to keep moving. It made note of where this human was, and went back to its routine. By the time the victim had made it home, the beast was fatigued. It could not move much further, let alone go inside the house. So, the beast laid down on the grass outside and fell asleep. The beast woke up in a pool of blood. There were no cuts on the beast's body, no injuries. The beast scrambled up and quickly went inside to make sure its victim was safe. No other beast could consume this precious morsel of a human other than the beast. It ran up the stairs and into the bedroom, and the human was sleeping perfectly fine. While the human was sleeping, the beast decided it was a good time to go pay a visit to the female human it saw the night before. It walked for about 30 minutes down the street, looking this way and that for the house that belonged to this beautiful human being. Eventually, the beast found the home of the human. The beast walked inside the house and found it to be dark. There were no lights, let alone light switches or any source that could make visibility easier. But the beast, being the beast it was, didn't let this stop it, and it began to search the house. There was no furniture in the basement, just a cement floor and some cobwebs. The main floor was filled with a few cardboard boxes of furniture, but none of them had been assembled. The beast ascended the stairs and found the majority of the furniture to be on the upper floor. The upstairs hallway's wall was covered with various paintings, photos, and portraits. The beast noticed a single room upstairs at the end of the hallway. The door was shut, but there was light seeping through the cracks in the door. The beast licked its lips and began to savor the human it could consume. It began to approach the door, and it stopped. The door had no handle. It could not be opened. This did not stop the beast. So it merely kicked the door down and forced its way into the room. Upon entering the room, the beast found that there was nothing but a bright ceiling light and a large mirror covering the majority of the back wall. The beast looked into the mirror and looked back at the doorway. It had not found what it was looking for, but the beast saw its reflection and decided that was enough. The beast looked at its arm, licked its lips, and bit it off. It took a while to eat the whole arm, slowly savoring each bite, licking its lips of blood. Then it bit the other arm off. The beast did not realize how delicious it was and what flavor it possessed. The beast continued to eat itself until the beast was no more. The only thing left in the room were two pools of blood, forming two halves of a broken heart. Chilling details. Blood. It was all I saw in that early morning light, practically everywhere from the splatter on the wall to the pool on the floor and the body. That lifeless body floating in it. As I looked at the body, 
marinating in its blood, I got this strange feeling of both joy and horror. I have done this job for many years now, and still, this feeling never goes away. I looked around at the walls, unsatisfied at how bare they were. His signature had to be left, and he liked it in blood. I looked down to my hands, the left having dry splatters of blood while the right, still holding the knife, was soaked in now dry, sticky red liquid. There wasn't enough, and the pool wouldn't work either. Walking over to the cabinet, I grabbed the bowl, bent over the body, it was female, probably in its late thirties, and slit a wrist. I hate doing this, but if I didn't, he would get angry. After filling the bowl, I went to work. During these times, I would let my mind wander. Most of the time, though, I would try and remember my past life. A young, naive child with no cares in the world, who played a game that ultimately changed his life forever. His family was brutally murdered while he watched from afar, scared out of his mind. The doll who killed everyone came over to the boy and asked, Will you join me? If you do, I will spare you. Not knowing the consequences, and being too scared to say no, I joined. My family was stuffed, sewn up, and became mindless slaves while I kept my consciousness and killed. But sometimes I wonder if it would have been better to say no, to become a mindless corpse slave or to kill while conscious, a question that has never been answered. After I finished the walls, I placed the bowl by the female and looked at her one last time before she was stuffed and sewn. I walked upstairs and looked in the first room, Two boys about the same age lay dead in their room. The one on the upper bed lay with his torso over the edge, while the other's leg stuck out from under the bottom bed. I headed to the big room where a man in his underwear lay face down on the floor. Try as he might, I won, and finally to the last room. The room from whence I came. The room of a girl. She, of all her other family members, was the worst of all. When I came out of the TV, she was not afraid. She sat determined to, to fight, fight back, back, but like her father, she, she did, did not win. win. And for her bravery and her denial to join, she, she had, had to, to be stitched up. Before I left, I looked at her one last time. The blood from the stitches now dry, her face wet, from the tears she cried, and the now lifeless eyes that stared at me with, all kindled an emotion that I thought I would never have again. Pity. I looked away, and stepped back into the game to wait for another victim. Another naive child. Closet Monster An orb floated through the sky over the town of Stanley, Idaho. The unnoticed orb slowly descended on the outskirt of town. The orb opened up, revealing two spacemen. The spacemen's six spidery legs 
clanked against the exit ramp as they left their ship with tools in hand. They went around behind the ship, pulled visors down over their red eyes and began to mend the dents in the ship with their tools. As the aliens tend to their ship, a creature shrouded in darkness emerged from the ship and fled toward town. The otherworldly men finished their repairs, ascended the ramp and took off none the wiser. The beast entered the sleeping town of Stanley. It used trees, bushes and darkness for cover. It pointed its snout up toward the sky and sniffed. It detected something with a scent close to that which it was fed. A child. The creature followed the scent to a small home. One of the windows were open so as to let the breeze into the house. The monster pried the window up further and crawled in through it. Paul Davis, age 10, slept soundly in his bed. The young lad awoke to the sound of his bedroom door being opened. He made out a figure, but wasn't able to see any details other than its bright yellow eyes. Paul pulled the covers over his head. It always made him feel safer when he thought of monsters. The foreign creature picked up the boy who was wrapped in the blanket, and hauled him to the closet. Aaron and Melinda Davis awoke to their son's screams. Aaron opened the drawer next to his bed and retrieved his handgun. Melinda followed Aaron as he made his way to Paul's bedroom. Paul? Aaron called out. There was no response. Aaron nudged the partially open bedroom door the rest of the way open and flipped the light switch. No sun, no blanket. Aaron heard a bang. He thought it had come from inside the closet. He reached forward, opened the closet door, and was smacked in the face. Aaron fired three shots from his handgun before he realized that it had been a shirt sleeve. The closet was normal with the exception of the newly added bullet holes. Aaron and Melinda searched the rest of the house and were unable to locate Paul, so they called the police. The authorities found no signs of a struggle and speculated that Paul Davis had run away from home as the boy had done so once before. They were baffled by the parents' testimony in which they had stated they heard Paul screaming. The day passed without incident. Night was a different story. Kyle Crawley turned on his bedroom light, shut the door and climbed into bed. Kyle had just celebrated his 12th birthday. Because of this, he felt that he would sleep well. He was mistaken. His eyes shut open when he heard his closet door slide open. Yellow eyes peered at him from inside the closet. Dad? Carl yelled frantically. The closet door slid shut as Vic, Kyle's father, burst through the bedroom door. Vic looked around and saw no threat. What's wrong, son? There's a monster in my closet. Vic let out a sigh. <sighs> Kyle was getting too old to believe in such nonsense. He thought. Vic walked over to the closet and opened the door, revealing it to be empty. See, nothing. I swear there was a monster in there. Kyle, I'm going to prove to you that there is no such thing as monsters. Vic stepped into the closet and slid the door shut despite his son's pleas. 
Kyle sat quietly on his bed, with tears running down his face. He expected screams, but instead there was silence. The closet door slid back open after a few moments had passed, and Vic stepped out. Not a thing to worry about. Vic stated. Dad? What is it? Can I sleep with you tonight? Vic wanted to say yes, but he feared that if he did, his son would want to sleep in his room every night. No, Kyle. You are twelve and it's time for you to let go and move past certain things. Good night, Kyle. I love you. Kyle didn't respond to his dad. He had just been given a death sentence. Vic turned out the light and shut the door. As Vic was walking back to his bedroom, he heard his son scream out for him again. Vic turned around and started for his son's room, but he stopped himself. If I leave him on his own, he should end up going to sleep and get over his belief in monsters. He contemplated. Monday morning rolled around and Vic went to wake his son for school. He opened the bedroom door and saw that his son's bed was empty. He checked the bathroom, the kitchen, the whole house. No Kyle. Vic called the police. The police found no signs of a struggle, but came to the conclusion that Kyle and Paul had been kidnapped. The mayor of Stanley issued a statement, asking for the children to be returned and warned that parents should keep a close eye on their children. The small town residents of Stanley, all 52 of them, were struck with a wave of anxiety and no one could tolerate the thought that their whole family would be next. The third night reared its unwelcome face. Isaac and John Belvish had their daughter sleep with her bedroom door open. Although fearful, young Susie Belvish fell asleep at 10pm. Isaac was made alert by Susie's screams. He dropped his sandwich, stood up from his seat at the kitchen table, grabbed a steak knife and bolted for Susie's room. Isaac caught a glimpse of the yellow beast's eyes as it closed the closet door. Isaac grabbed the flashlight next to his daughter's bed with the intention of throwing open the closet door and using it to blind the kidnapper. Isaac put his hand on the handle and gathered his resolve. He threw the door open and saw that the closet was empty. In his grief, he slumped down onto the closet floor and pounded his fists against it. A part of the closet floor crumbled, revealing a passageway underneath the house. Joanne, call 911. He shouted before going into the hall. Armed with only his flashlight and knife, Isaac descended into the darkness below. He proceeded slowly, occasionally aiming his flashlight above him. He walked quite a ways before he saw something that shed light on everything. Up above him, he saw a green, sticky substance that was holding something together above him. He struck it open with his fist and saw clothes. It was a closet. The thing was tearing holes and digging passages under closets and reconstructing the flooring. Isaac pressed on and came across small human bones. Child bones. No. He gasped in a hushed whisper. Isaac began to sprint down the passageway. He turned the sharp corner and smacked right into the back of the beast, which knocked him off his butt. During the struggle, the beast lost its grip and an object shattered onto the floor. The creature was angered by this, posturing to face Isaac. 
Isaac was able to make out an elongated head with the snout and yellow eyes. Its body was soggy, its claws were sharp, its tail long and spiked, and both feet contained three toes. The closest comparison that Isaac's mind could make was that of the werewolves of folklore. As the beast was turning around him, Isaac was able to see what the beast had dropped. A half-eaten Susie. Isaac grabbed the knife, prepared to fight to the end. His flashlight rolled out of his hand as he was in the process of standing back up. The beam of the flashlight struck the beast's foot, causing it to disappear. The beast let out a mighty growl as its stumped leg hit the ground. Although solid, the beast appeared to be somehow constructed of shadow. Isaac dove for the flashlight as the beast swung at him. He barely escaped being clawed by shining the flashlight on the beast's hand, which disappeared into nothingness before making contact. Isaac continued to assail the beast with the flashlight. The beast retaliated and spat out a green substance which stuck to Isaac's shirt. Isaac quickly realized that the creature's mucus was what held the closet floors together. He renewed his assault with the light beams and continued to strike the shadow beast. His SWAT team composed of five members showed up at the Belvish residence. Each was well armed. Although a SWAT team might have been a bit drastic, the police department wasn't willing to risk the kidnapper escaping. Joanne Belvish told them about how her daughter and husband had disappeared. The SWAT team did a sweep of the house and found nothing out of the ordinary until they came across the hole in Susie's closet. The SWAT team entered the hole one by one and activated the tactical lights on their vests. As they walked, they discovered entrances to closets, child's bones, and green goo. The lead paused and motioned for the rest of the team to stop moving. Off in the distance, a pained wailing could be heard. The SWAT team resumed with a firm grip on their guns and rounded a corner. Their light caught a figure. Isaac Belvish. Isaac Belvish turned around with an empty look in his eyes and a steak knife in hand. He was ordered to drop his weapon drop it. and get up against, up the, against wall. the wall. He did not comply. The SWAT team lead knocked the knife from Isaac's hand and pinned him to the wall. As Isaac was being handcuffed, a member of the SWAT team noticed a half-eaten Susie. Isaac Belvish was suspected of kidnapping and murder of all the dead children, but was found innocent due to a lack of evidence. The case was marked cold as the police had no more leads. Isaac was committed to a mental institution for a short while and later had to move after being released. He chose to go through therapy after being traumatized by the events that he saw. Isaac was largely thought insane because of the encounter he claimed to have had with the Shadow Beast. Bigger Portions The coffee was beginning to get cold. I drummed my fingers impatiently on the table He'd be coming. He had to come. My gut was right. A bespectacled man with a few strands on what was on its way to becoming a moustache sat on his upper lip. His forehead gleamed with perspiration. I presented a friendly smile to acknowledge his arrival. Morning. He mumbled, hastily taking a sit. In a matter of seconds, he fished out a small plastic box with a piece of meat inside. 
The blood from the meat stained the inner wall like paint. I opened the box and pressed the meat with my thumb. No depressions. I placed it into my briefcase. Nothing left that can be drawn back to you? I asked warily. He nodded. How's Jennifer? I asked. I took care of her too. No messes. He murmured, picking at his finger. That was when I noticed it. The bandage that was tied awkwardly around his wrist. Where did you get that? I asked, my eyebrows beginning to furrow. He bit his lip and sweat began to roll down the sides of his face. Where did you get that? I asked again, this time. It was more of an accusatory assertion in my tone. Jennifer? She scratched me. It wasn't that big. Come on! I groaned, slamming my fist onto the table. A few stairs were drawn. I lowered my head and spoke again. You were careless. He shifted uncomfortably in his seat. I took a deep breath and reached into my pocket for the photograph. I passed it to him. It was a clear portrait photo of a cherubic girl's face. <sighs> I sent you her address on email. Her name is Lisa. Make sure nothing happens this time. I said, jabbing my index finger at his plastered wrist. He nodded once more and stood up. Oh, I said quickly before he had the chance to leave. Get me bigger portions next time. Yeah, he replied. He spun around and left. I grinned. Today was going to be a good day. I stood up and made my way towards where I worked. I entered the gates. My short, hello, was good enough for greeting for the stocky guard that sat lazily on his stool. He waved his pudgy fingers at me as acknowledgement. As I looked up at the grand assembly hall, I carelessly bumped into someone. I looked down. My face contorted into a pleasant surprise. It was a girl. She clutched her bag that slung on her shoulders tightly. Her ponytail, her face, everything was quite the style. Her cheeks were rosy and so were her eyes. She was pretty, no doubt. Morning, Mr. Cleave. I'm Gina, the new student in your class since Jennifer. Uh, she stammered. I understand. You're lucky I didn't assign any homework on my last lesson. I smiled. She laughed. Yes, I just wanted to say hello. See you in class later, Mr. Cleave. I waved at her as she skipped away. I stopped smiling. I took out my mobile phone and dialed a number. The number. Forget Lisa, I said as I walked briskly to the assembly hall. There's a new girl today, and she's perfect. Look out for any updates I'll send to you. I placed my phone back in my pockets. I couldn't help but grin again. Lots of girls disappear. Lots of girls run away from home. Lots of girls can get involved in accidents. Especially girls who are new to an environment. They wouldn't suspect a thing. Black Rose Forest my name is Hector. I'm 19 years old and I'm moving out of my parents' house next week. I've saved up money from numerous part-time jobs, so I'm pretty sure I have enough to live off while I find a job in the area to which I'm moving. 
my friends decided to throw a moving up party for me. It's going to be an all night camping trip in the forest. Because they know I'm into scary places like old abandoned houses and forests. Black Rose Forest has been rumored to have had a number of strange occurrences, things like disappearances, ghosts and such. So it was the perfect place for my party. I set off for the party at 8pm. By then it was starting to get dark out, the kind of atmosphere I like. My friends Kevin, his girlfriend Lacey, Steve and Joe were waiting for me at the entrance to the forest. You ready to go in? Kevin asked. Yep, yep. sure. I replied, and we went into the forest. The woods were so dense, because the trees were very tightly packed. This made it difficult to move through the forest with all our camping equipment and food, but we persevered. Thirty minutes later, we reached the clearing. We could see the night sky perfectly, so we set up camp here. I had a brilliant time. We had a few drinks, told scary stories around the campfire, and Joe even brought some weed. We basically did all the typical things teenagers did. We were acting like idiots, but I didn't care. It was a welcome break from my shitty job at McDonald's. By 10.45pm, the place was a wreck. There were beer cans and food wrappers everywhere. We had no intention of cleaning up afterwards because people never come out here anyway, so who's going to give a fuck? Lacey, who was very drunk, went into the woods, possibly for a piss or to puke, I don't know. She didn't tell us, so we didn't ask. At about 11.27, we were starting to get worried about Lacey, because she hadn't come back. Kelvin, like the lazy bum he is, said, Hector, you're the most sober out of all of us. Could you please go look for Lacey? I had no idea why someone as hot as Lacey was going out with a lazy, fat slob like Kelvin anyway. I had to bail him out all the time. He constantly asked me for money, so he could impress her since he was too lazy to go out and get a job. Whenever the lads and I went to a bar, he never brought enough cash for a drink, so I ended up having to pay for his beer. Regardless, I went into the woods to look for Lacey anyway. Maybe she would finally realize what a lazy son of a bitch Kevin was, and dump him and go out with me instead. It was nearly pitch black, because the only light source I had was a flashlight. I must have been looking around for a good 26 minutes before I found any sign of Lacey. I found her gold necklace, the one I had to pay for so Kevin could impress her. It had some blood on it, so I knew Lacey was hurt, so I had to find her quickly. I was getting increasingly worried and paranoid, not just for her, but for myself as well. But there could be some wild animal loose in these woods, or worse, some psychopath? I ran, faster than I ever ran before, as I only knew one thing, I had to find Lacey, and fast. After a few good minutes of running, I found Lacey, or what was left of her at least. Her flayed corpse hung from a tree as her blood drenched the tree trunk and the ground below. Her eyes had been gouged out, and her right arm was hanging by a tendon. I only knew it was her because her bloodstained clothes were next to the tree from which she hung. I threw up and started crying. Someone had done this, I thought to myself. That's when I noticed the sign written in her blood on one of the nearby trees. It read, Crime, angering us, sentence, death. Was this meant for her? No, 
It couldn't be. As it was written in her blood. Someone knew one of us would find her like this. That message was meant for us. Without thinking, I just ran. I had to tell the others, and we had to get out of here as soon as possible. I reached the clearing, and I was going to tell them that Lucy was killed by someone. That's when I noticed it. The clearing was smaller than it was when we first got here. No, this just couldn't be real. It was the trees. The trees are moving. Kevin, Steve, Joe, we have to get out of here. Lacey's dead. The trees are moving, I shouted. Kevin looked at me confused. That was until he noticed that one of the trees was right next to the extinguished campfire. Like an idiot, he walked up to the tree, thinking that it wouldn't move while he was looking. While this was true, we were able to find out that it was only true for them moving from one location to another. Making a sound like wood creaking, the tree's trunk bent down and a branch picked up Kevin. What followed was the most awful sound I have ever heard. Kevin's scream of agony mixed with the sounds of bones breaking, flesh tearing, and the sound of leaves rustling. We watched in horror as a waterfall of Kevin's blood fell from the tree, covering the trunk. The blood moved and formed an ominous message reading, You're next. I was so horrified by the message and the fact that Kevin was dead, so much so that I didn't notice the trees closing in behind Steve, Joe and me. I didn't understand how it was possible for the trees to move because their roots were still lodged in the ground, and there was no sign of the ground being disturbed in any way. I didn't have time to ponder though. My remaining friends and I just ran. Running through the woods was the worst thing ever, especially knowing any of the trees could pick us off and kill us. Branches kept grabbing at us, and I received numerous cuts from the branches. It felt like we were running for days, and the exit was nowhere in sight. Then we found a dirt track. This had to lead to the way out. It just must. Finally, in a stroke of luck, we found a way out. We didn't know what to think. The pain from the cuts we received from the trees reminded us that we were still alive. We agreed to never speak of this night ever again. And we would have to tell Lacey and Kevin's parents that they went missing in the woods. We couldn't tell them it was the trees. They would never believe us. I went to bed without saying anything to my parents. I'm moving out next week. And I'm going to move to an urban area. I just hope I make it. There's a tree in my front garden. Well, Lee Bauer, I hope you enjoyed your episode dedicated to your lovely self. There will be a part two to this episode though, rest assured. I actually had two more stories lined up, but my computer's editing software decided to die multiple times, which destroyed some of my recordings. It happened sometimes, but I pressed on. So this Friday, I'll add those two extra stories I've already recorded into the mix as a special thank you to you, Lee, and as a bonus for all you lovely listeners out there. They're two of the goriest stories, trust me. <laughs> Once again, Lee, 
Thank you so much for your support. I am lucky to have you. And especially lucky to have all of my supporters. And lastly, this episode is also dedicated to Matthew J. Bauer. Courtesy of Lee Bauer. Stay tuned this Friday for some seriously messed up stories. One involving blood and a heavy disclaimer. And I'll see you lovely people then. As always, till next we meet.